Welcome to the College Commons Podcast and our acclaimed author series, brought to you by the Hebrew Union College Jewish Institute of Religion, together with the Jewish Book Council. We'll meet authors recognized by the National Jewish Book Awards and discuss their celebrated books. My name is Joshua Hola, Dean of HUC's Skirball Campus in Los Angeles, and your host. Welcome to this episode of the College Commons Podcast and our acclaimed author series in partnership with the Jewish Book Council. It's my great pleasure to welcome Max Gross. Author Max Gross worked for 10 years at the New York Post before becoming editor-in-chief of the Commercial Observer. He wrote a book about dating called From Schlub to Stud, and the Lost Shtetl, the subject of our discussion today, won the National Jewish Book Award and the Jewish Fiction Award from the Association of Jewish Libraries, and is his first novel. It's about a small Jewish village called Kresko in the Polish forest that's so secluded that no one even knows it exists until now. Max Gross, welcome to the Commons Podcast. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's good to be here. I want to start off with the public presentation of the book in one of the press releases, which aptly describes the Lost Shtetl as, quote, written with the fearless imagination of Michael Chabon and the piercing humor of Gary Steingart. In particular, in relation to the style and imagination of the book, I want to ask you about the conversational Yiddish style of the early 20th century, where occasional asides to the reader always offer a kind of a wink and a nod to the reader. And I want to ask you your relationship with the Yiddish classics, Shalom Aleicha, Mendel Sforim, et cetera, uh, how you were exposed to them, how they influenced your uh, style and how you adopted a style. Well, um, I love those Yiddish uh, folk tales and I loved uh, those Yiddish writers. I don't speak Yiddish, but um, as a kid, I remember I was invited over to um, my parents had a friend. They had a, a house in the country. I was given my own room. You know, we go for the weekend and I found this little book, this little very worn paperback copy of Gimple the Fool by Isaac Bashevis Singer, his uh, collection of stories. And it was, for me, uh, love at first sight. I was probably around 11 or 12 at the time, but I thought that the voice was so piercing and so funny. I mean, Singer was always my great love, but there were so many others that you know followed. Not that all of them were were, were funny, but uh, Mendela, you mentioned Heim Grata. You know, there were there were so many that I looked at over the years, and you know, Shmuel Agnon, and I did sort of fall in love with those Yiddish folk tales and those old shtetl tales. And you know, what was very funny for me was I did not come from a religious background at all. I was actually very, very secular. And the, the joke around our house was that we were you know, expressing our Jewish roots if we ate a bagel on Yom Kippur. And I was always regarded in my family as the nut because I actually went and got a bar mitzvah. And uh, <laughs> went to, after, uh, after college, I moved to Israel for a year. And you know, I'm, I'm not a religious person, but I have always been really taken and fascinated with that um, lost world. When I was a kid, I did know a great-grandfather who was born in Poland and who came to America before the Holocaust. It was like probably in World War I that he came to America. I was very interested in this little man who, who could speak like three words of English, but who came from this you know, really vanished place that was such an encompassing universe. And so mercilessly snuffed out. 
but to your to your original question, yeah, throughout college, even in high school and 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 beyond, I was reading those Yiddish stories, and I was it was very important to me that this become a, a little bit like a Yiddish folktale, a modern day Yiddish folktale, and I and I, I gauged it a little bit of bait and switch in the sense that um, it started off very much like you know a wise man of Helm. It got a lot darker and a lot more carnal and a lot more realistic was my hope um, quickly, um, which I think is what Singer did a lot. Uh, it was yeah. a tribute to Isaac Bashevis Singer. Some might say it a ripoff of Isaac Bashevis Singer. <laughs> I'll, I'll call it a tribute. <laughs> I want to go back to one of the themes and uh, your, your uh, love affair with Yiddish literature and the classics. I, I think one of the great advantages, and, and this goes to the darkness you referred to before, one of the great advantage of reading the Yiddish classics is that they they often don't romanticize the shtetl or the ghetto. Often their authors are running away from that, and, and they're explicit about the critiques. Whereas today, in the comfort of our American diasporic existence and our distance from that history, sometimes we, contemporaries, we do romanticize the shtetl a lot. And so I want to ask you where the shtetl is in your personal imagination and in the imagination of the book. What did you want to celebrate? What did you want to critique? What did you want to kind of grab by the lapels and shake up a bit? Mm. Well, I mean, look, one thing that I will say is, and I really do love Tevye the Dairyman and um, think that, you know, it's, it's a great part of this literature, even if it's not the full story of the literature. You know, I think that um, Fiddler on the Roof probably um, softened the image quite a bit. And not even that they were, it was that soft in the sense that, like, you know, there are real things that Tevye and, you know, uh, and yeah. are dealing with. They're dealing with Cossacks and they're dealing with, like, intermarriage and they're dealing with all the poverty. Things. Poverty, exactly. But everybody's motives are very pure. Um, the, <laughs> and I think that that, you know, these are little folk tales, like if you read the original Sholem Aleichem, they are, but I think that I wanted to dirty up a little bit uh, some of the motives and some of the characters, you know, in terms of uh, their priorities and, and, and whatnot. I think that you're absolutely right. You know, a lot of the Yiddish writers um, were, you know, very explicitly critiquing that life, and um, that was the great you know, boon in Yiddish literature a hundred years ago, uh, coming out of uh, of these places. But I do think that popularly, so much of it comes back down to Fiddler on the Roof and Shalom Aleichem. And you know, I always believed that the shtetl life was not dissimilar to every other kind of life. It's just a, a more enclosed, insular world. And you know, I mean, look, when I was just coming out of college, I um, spent a couple of years writing for the Forward newspaper. I was general assignment. I, I used to call it the, the freak beat because they didn't put me on anything. They just gave me, you know, whatever came through the door. And, you know, I would spend a lot of time in, you know, these Orthodox communities in New Square, New York and uh, Borough Park and, and all these places, which I always thought of as very much uh, shtetl-like in the sense that, you know, they were you know, living the same way that they did, except, you know, the technology was a little bit different. But even that, you know, they, they rejected so much of the technology that, that a lot of our contemporaries use. But, um, you know, you see those in those things like, you know, problems and real issues and 
people who are venal and people who are noble. And, you know, I remember when, you know, pre-COVID, I'm, I'm a degenerate gambler. And I would occasionally go to some of these like poker rooms in Brooklyn. And, you know, the moment that the sun went down on Saturday night, you know, it would be filled with like, you know, Orthodox Jews, right. you know, playing uh, cards. And, you know, I, 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 human weakness travels across, you know, all, uh, all boundaries and all, uh, all other kinds of things. And I thought it was important to showcase that. One of the things that I also wanted to show was that there are real comforts in that world and in that life and um, in that the structure of living a religious life, a, a life amongst, you know, the familiar. I think it's what a lot of people yearn for. And that goes well beyond Jews. I want to expand the conversation to some other themes which are prominent and for the moment, I want to go into the Holocaust. And I think it's fair to say that this is not a Holocaust story per se. The Lost Shtetl is a story framed by the Holocaust. Mm. And in one scene, before embarking on this adventure of discovery to the modern world, our protagonist, Yankel, articulates his understanding of the risks, or, or you articulate them for him. I'd like to ask you to read this passage for us to um, frame this theme. Yankel was no fool. He had never yearned to see the city, certainly not a Gentile city, because it had been drilled into his head from the time he was still a toddler. The world outside Kresko was a dangerous, treacherous place, and that he should consider himself fortunate that he was born far away from it. The other students in Haider told ghost stories of what happened to boys who had strayed too far into Kresko's woods how there were demons and warlocks lying in wait, ready to rip the flesh from one's bones and fry one's liver in chicken schmaltz. He had heard tales, the howling in the trees at night were the moans of disobedient boys who had trespassed and been turned into wolves by whatever witch they had come across. Not all of it was witches either. There were stories of boys who had been chased, captured, put in cages, and turned into bars of soap at the hands of mad, bloodthirsty Gentiles who did so out of a limitless loathing for Jews. I found this passage very compelling. I, I feel that we, the reader, are still waffling at this point in the story between the mindset of the inhabitants of Kresko in their innocence and our own modernity. And in that waffling space, I think we hear these fears, as you specifically articulated them, these fears of anti-Semitism articulated as a kind of boogeyman, highly troped paranoia on the one hand. But on the other hand, as contemporary readers, we know that in fact, that exaggerated fear is in fact not exaggerated at all, but in fact understated because we know the Holocaust as the reader, even though the hidden away inhabitants of Kreskel are have yet to discover it. And so I want to ask you to muse for a minute, if you would, on the power of imagining the Rip Van Winkle awakening as a vehicle for confronting the human condition afresh. The protagonist of the book is sent out into, you know, the big city and he's put in a mental hospital when he starts talking about like, you know, what, what because everybody, nobody believes him that he could come from this like, you know, secluded little corner. And they eventually 
they try to educate him about the modern world and they, they dump it all on him with uh, the, the Rolling Stones and, you know, Botticelli paintings and the Holocaust all at once. And um, he hears the story of the Holocaust and he goes like, you know, how dumb do you think I am that I could believe that like, you know, a whole country would, would, would seek out, search, murder and, and, and burn, you know, millions and millions of people like that. It would be a, a global project that would expand its reach into, you know, every corner um, that they could reach. Um, and do it, and it's so diabolical and heinous, and but but it's but it's real um, that it just seems you know beyond the human imagination, and that's one reaction. But I think that there were numerous reactions, and I tried to get a lot of different reactions to you know being suddenly woken up after the slumber and finding this, and it, it, it's essentially what causes you know the great you know fissure in the town between Katznelson and Sokolow is that you know. Sokolo is like, all right, let's move on. And Katzenetson is like, no, we're, ne we're not moving on from this. And there is this view of the town of like, this is a really big deal. And a view from the town of, well, it was like three quarters of a century ago. So it's really not a big deal anymore. And one, one of the advantages of doing a story about a town is that you can gauge a lot of different opinions and get that. Mm -hmm. So I tried to, uh, to do that. Before we return to the podcast, we want to let you know about digital learning on the College Commons platform. Beyond this podcast, which is available to the public at large, check out the online courses at collegecommons.huc.edu for in-depth learning, digital syllabi, assignments, inspiration for teaching, and one of our most influential courses called Making Prayer Real. Subscribe with your synagogue for all this and more. Just click sign up at collegecommons.huc.edu. Oh, and one more thing. Help us out and rate us on iTunes. But whatever you do, do not give us five stars, unless we deserve it. Now, back to our podcast. The Lost Shtetl is, among other things, a coming-of-age story, and that quality of coming-of-age uh, in which even for a moment, you think that your discoveries are unique to you before you realize that your discoveries are in fact just education about the world around you. You write as Yankel awakens to the modern world, specifically on his journey out of the forest, his drive from the forest onto paved roads and into the modern world. You write the following, quote, for a moment, Yankel felt wiser and more sophisticated than his fellow townsmen, like he had just uncovered for himself one of the mysteries of adulthood that children are never privy to, close quote. And in this passage, speaking of coming of age, I couldn't help but think of Eve in the few seconds after she bites into the apple, but she hasn't yet given it to Adam. And in that moment, she has a monopoly on insight and I wonder what was going through her head. And, and, and I see you giving us one version of this as we think about what's going through Yankel's head when he has just taken his first bite of the apple and, and re-encounters the universe, the world, knowing that all of his compadres, all of his people, his world, his points of reference haven't yet done so. Revel in that a moment um, at, at, from the point of view of a coming of age story. 
that was one of the more fun parts of the the book was getting this up to speed on all the you know all the things that we've gone so comfortable with and there is a lot of great excitement on you know the un, on, on first encountering the unknown which was a real advantage of this plot was that you know I, I I was able to sort of delve into those kinds of fantasies and and delights um, upon upon seeing them and you know I think wisdom too I think you're absolutely right that 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 was a a, a really fascinating moment to think about is this moment where there is a stark divide between uh, what Eve right. knows and what Adam knows mm. uh, and it's just a moment but it, it is a, it's a very literary moment for sure. I want to layer onto the Holocaust uh, this Polish experience, which for the mm. Poles today, I think it's fair to say that the Holocaust is embedded in the other great sort of Polish trauma, which is the Soviet experience. Non-Jewish Poles, I think, elide the two into this sort of mid-20th and second half of the 20th century tragedy of the Polish experience. And uh, the Jewish component of that is certainly there, but it's complicated by virtue of the Poles' own sense of victimization, both at the hands of the Germans and the Russians. It's just, it's very layered, very rich. It's very interesting, but it's also very troubling. And in your story, when non-Jewish Poles encounter this wayward, stereotypical, anachronistic Jew, they seem to have reactions to him that reflect this very deep complexity in relation to non-Jewish Poland and Jewish Poland, recent history, ancient history, etc. And so I want to ask you if you've been to Poland, if if you have if you have a taste for this quality of the Polish experience that inspired some of your writing, which I found very evocative in that regard, having visited Poland myself for the first time only as an adult and really being impressed by these these difficulties? I have been to Poland. Um, back when, you mentioned my uh, past as a, a journalist for the New York Post. I was a travel writer there for um, a while. And I've been following the, you know, the current goings on in Poland with, you know, uh, greater and greater alarm um, over the last couple of years, just in terms of how the government has gotten you know, very, very ultra-nationalistic and um, it, it, extremely, I, I don't know what the word would be, censorous of like anything that smacks of any criticism of uh, how Poland behaved during World War II. And, and as you say, it was, it was complicated. I would never for a minute suggest that there wasn't incredible heroism on behalf of some of uh, the Poles who, you know, resisted the the Nazis and uh, went to their deaths, you know, willingly, honorably, heroically. It, it, it was a great moment. Um, and then there were Poles who were, you know, incredible collaborators who, you know, did right. everything they could to help the Germans and who were as brutal as the Germans were in terms of hunting up Jews and trying to, you know, help in that mission. I think that Poland resisted the Soviets very, very honorably. Like there was, you know, great public popular contempt for the uh, puppet governments. There was, you know, great resistance. And it's hard not to look at the period from, you know, 45 until I guess 89 um, without like, you know, incredible admiration uh, for what the Poles um, 
did in those years. And yet you've seen that the you know anti-Semitism that was there, that was always there, um, has not died away. It's 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 only been growing in in, in recent years, and I think that it's been um, very alarming. The ending of the book did change over the course of my writing it in terms of you know just how there was you know this growing political, explicit political uh, hostility towards any kind of criticism of of, of Poland and. Uh, that was something that I, I altered and, you know, and became what it was. My research, I did read a lot of books about Poland. I did go to Poland. And I have a number of friends who were um, Polish and who, you know, told me about, you know, conditions there. And I have a friend who I would send these, like, annoying questions to about, like, you know, mm-hmm. what's going on in, with this. And not, not, they were not even political questions. They were more like, you know, where would you get jeans in Warsaw? Like, what would be, like, the best, <laughs> like, you know, shopping mall to do this? And I actually have a friend who, um, she was there in the 1990s as a student. She's Jewish. And um, she told me one of the more interesting things that I did wind up stealing for the book, which was she said that there was a very paranoid component of polls that Jews would someday show up at their doorstep asking to, you know, be allowed back in their houses. Um, that this was something that was very much in the consciousness of a lot of Poles. And, you know, I mean, look, the, the book is being published in Poland, I think later this year, although it might be next year. And, um, you know, I've been corresponding with the Polish publishers and they, their view was like, yeah, that, that is like a, a, a big uh, part of a lot of people there and a lot of people there now. And that's one of the things that I find, that, you know, the complications that I find so interesting is that, I know Poles who are, you know, extremely upset about the current government, um, who are extremely upset about these speech laws, um, and who think that this is a disgrace and that it should be thrown out. And, you know, it should be added, the last election was very, very close. It was like, you know, 51-49 kind of uh, Mm -hmm. situation. So there is a divided opinion and a divided uh, polity in, in Poland. I want to close by asking you what your favorite part of the book is. When you go to give your book talks or are you readings, what, what do you tend to cite? What do you, what do you like to convey? I think that the passages that, you know, for me as a writer, I'm most close to or most like are the ones that were a surprise to me as a writer. But I thought like, you know, took, took the book into a very different realm. And I am assuming that it's okay to do spoilers because, um, but uh, my favorite passage is when Yankel goes to the brothel with uh, Carol, simply because I started that passage thinking it was going to be one thing, and then I was surprised at who he sees in the in the brothel, and um, it's a great surprise to me. It felt like you know afterwards, like oh well, of course that was what it should have been. But um, I didn't know it as I wrote it. And it, it, I was like, all the things that I was planning on doing later, I wound up changing because of that. Um, but uh, I, I thought that that was, uh, that was my favorite passage. I welcome all of our listeners to pick up a copy of The Lost Shtetl. It's an absolute joy to read. Wonderful turn of fancy and language and a little bit of a journey uh, into some of the stories that many of us grew up with. And to Max Gross, thank you so much. It was really a pleasure. Thank you so much. Pleasure being here. 
If you've been enjoying our acclaimed author series in partnership with the Jewish Book Council, you understand the power of literature to educate and enrich our community, which is the mission of the JBC. In addition to the National Jewish Book Awards, each year the JBC works with over 250 authors and 115 partner Jewish organizations to set up literary events in local communities through its JBC network. Covering a wide spectrum of Jewish life and ideas, the program offers access to some of the most important thinkers and speakers of our day. To learn more about bringing authors into your own community, contact Suzanne at jewishbooks.org. Until next time, thank you for joining us on HUC's College Commons Podcast.